everyone. Welcome back to the Not So Rare podcast. We have Taylor Lewis and I am Liz Beauvais. And today we're revisiting our rare disease Mythbuster series. Um, this is something that we found on a website called The Mighty that really listed probably about 25 different misconceptions that people have said about rare diseases. And we went through the first 12 in previous episodes. So today we're focusing on, on items 13, 14, and 15. So to kick us off, um, item number 13 was raised by Mindy. And she said, some think that I should be better after all the doctor's visits. It's not easy to treat something that even your physicians don't fully understand. Yeah. <laughs> so I will kind of give a little rundown to I was really lucky and fortunate to be part of the ASPO American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology Conference for Lymphatics um, recently. And I, this is very true for even, and they'll even tell you, you know, we're continuing to learn. We're continuing to try to fully understand. I'm not sure we'll get there within the next 10 years. I think rare disease sometimes takes a really long time to know one, like understand what it is. The lymphatic system is just not researched very deep yet. Um, but to know how to treat us. So this is, yeah, yeah. And I feel this, but I also want to give huge credit to the physicians. I know we have a couple of them that listen to us that how much effort they put into our care. And that was so evident and obvious to me at this most recent conference, just hearing their perspectives of taking the patient's, the patient's quality of life and our just general wants and needs before being so clinical sometimes. So um, just a wonderful experience that I wanted to share since it's relevant to this. Thanks for sharing that, Taylor. And I think also um, a lot goes into our doctor's visits as well. Um, we've talked about how for our particular disease, it affects different parts of our body and different systems in our body. And that it's not like one doctor treats all of that. So for people who have complex lymphatic diseases, such as Taylor and myself, you might see that we're seeing a GI doctor one day or oncologist another day, or maybe have an interventional radiology appointment on the third day. It, it often ends up that those appointments take up multiple days and might even take a couple months just to get through all the doctor's appointments before the doctors can all come together and discuss. So it's not as simple as I'm going to go to the doctor today and have an analysis and have an answer. A lot of times it takes multiple visits and multiple people to think through solutions before you can even put a path forward. I think something too that we know is a barrier to one diagnosis, but two treatment is when physicians aren't willing to collaborate with others who know our disease and, and know more about it. I think like that's a big reason why I think it took me so long to find a diagnosis because it took me to find um, Dr. Jing at Stanford, who was willing to collaborate with um, Dr. Adams and Dr. Hamill on finding me a diagnosis. And I think like sometimes um, specialists and adult care is notorious for this get so, um, you know, focused and 
into one area that we're forgetting the importance of sharing information and being open to information from those who may know more. And this kind of goes along with something Taylor and you and I were talking about this week of how it's really hard to go to some of these adult specialists because they're they're within their realm, like they're within their their specialty. And to have them consider that your disease might affect their area, but not really be from their area, it causes a lot of, a lot of the patients having to really speak up for their disease, speak up and really know the medical side of their disease to even try to connect the dots for the doctors, which is frustrating and also um, is not the easiest when you're sitting in a specialist appointment. Yeah. And something that was really awesome about this conference is they mentioned to me patient support groups and us coming together as the patients really makes a difference in our care because they're aware we sometimes find out things before them. And that's what was relayed to me that we sometimes have to be the expert on our disease because we're the ones doing you know, the ins and out, of course, our physicians are working overload and doing everything they can, but they don't just treat our rare diseases. They treat a whole department of hematology oncology. And sometimes we're ahead of just the game in general. If we can come together and discuss, discuss our side effects, discuss stuff that's going on, because they may only see a few of us at each clinic. And I think that's also why it's so important. Um, like Taylor and I have one particular disease on the spectrum of diseases and are our umbrella of diseases, I guess. Um, but we are in similar medication as people that might have other diseases or other um, other sides of the spectrum. And so that's why it's so important for even these little individual diagnosis groups. I don't even know if that's a real word, but we'll go with it. Each of these different groups to even be able to collaborate together because a side effect someone with this disease is having might be a side effect I'll have and vice versa and really bridging the gap across the diagnoses. And I think that's why you and I found like when we found the metastatic breast cancer group for Picray, we wanted to like jump on all of their knowledge, right? Because we're grasping at straws to find people who get us and to get kind of what we're dealing with. And when we're on such an experimental medication, really, we have to come together in that way. It may be annoying, right? Like it may, it may just be, you know, you don't have my particular diagnosis, but if we're being treated by the same medication, chances are we're going to be dealing with similar side effects that we should come together and talk about. So basically Taylor, you're saying together, we are not so rare together. We are not so rare. (laughs) And this is not me coming down again on the group. I respect you ladies and men. I'm just saying we do need to come together, especially when taking such experimental drugs. So moving on to item number 14, this was raised by Karen and she says it's a misconception that a diagnosis comes quickly. Taylor, how long was it for before you got your diagnosis? <laughs> the stone age is when I started. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Realistically, I mean, I had issues from birth, but I, they, I mean, they really ramped when I was about 11, 12 is when something was like clearly not right with me. So it took from 11 to 12 to um, the age of 17, 18 to get a diagnosis. So 
almost a decade that I was trying to get diagnosed. And the un- the kind of, I don't want to say unfortunate, but it is a little unfortunate. Um, even when we get that diagnosis, if you have a rare disease, that's terrifying in itself. One, you're like searching for it, searching for it, and then you get it. But then you're kind of left with, we don't really know much about you yet. And then you're kind of searching for what that diagnosis means. I'm interesting. I'm in like the older generation of our disease, I guess you could say. Um, There's not very many of us adults with our disease that we know of. Um, But I was diagnosed with something when I was five. And that diagnosis, not that it was incorrect, but the understanding of the disease has evolved significantly since then. So I went for about 20 years thinking I had one thing really to come to find out that it was something that was, was much bigger than what we thought it was as an adult. Um, and I don't even know if you can actually say that was 20 plus years for a diagnosis. Cause I had a diagnosis. It's just that the science, the medicine, the understanding evolved tremendously throughout my lifetime. And so even having a diagnosis that doesn't always mean that that might be your same diagnosis 10 years down the road. Like there might be something more that we learn about our diseases or different, different things that our bodies do when they respond to our disease. And that diagnosis might change over time. Yeah. And that's going to be an upcoming episode as I've gotten some really wonderful education from this conference. I just went to once again, reiterating we are not your physicians. We are not clinicians. We're not medical professionals. I am a therapist, um, <laughs> which means I do not have any of this medical background. So with that being said, um, we want to give like an informed, educated relay of message, but I want everybody to know it is your basically obligation and your right as a patient to go to your physicians and start having these conversations. Because what I'm learning more too is we're using a disservice to the community and we're creating barriers when we're using old terminology because it's going back to old science and we are progressing so much further than sometimes I think we give ourselves credit for. Um, for instance, my disease of generalized lymphatic anomaly used to be called lymphangiomatosis. What we knew about lymphangiomatosis versus what we know now, two completely different things, two completely way, different ways of treatment, different lifespans. I would say um, as we're kind of moving forward and understanding my particular disease as more of a spectrum in our care, that we need to start thinking that sometimes we progress in these quote unquote diagnosis differently when we're a rare disease patient. We don't have years and years of history to back up our diagnosis. We must evolve as science evolves. End of my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Taylor. (laughs) So on that note, we're going to move on to our third topic for today, which was raised by Christy. And she says, with a rare disease, it's nearly impossible to get others to understand you're in pain if you can't show them. And this is, this is interesting to me because um, Taylor and I have probably talked about different pains that we've had based on our disease or based on other things going on with our bodies. The one question I hate when doctors ask is give me the number to rate your pain one through 10. And the reason why I say that is I feel like 
there's different parts of my body that are always in pain. And so I kind of tend to ignore it sometimes. And so if I'm asked to rate my pain, I don't think my rate of pain is the same as someone else rating their pain. And I I actually had doctors call me out on it and say, you're saying your pain's a four, but you're having trouble breathing because you're in pain. That's clearly not a four. So I think it's also really hard to judge pain as a rare disease patient. I think we're so used to such severe levels of pain, to be quite honest, that our one, our pain tolerance is different, but two, we don't like to complain when we have average pain. I'm in pain every day. Do I complain about pain every day? No, but it's something that we deal with. So I feel like our skills are already a bit off. Like I was at the emergency room uh, a couple years ago. I think it was maybe even a year and a half ago and um, had a kidney infection, had some other stuff going on. Um, and I was having like appendix pain and, and the doctors like pressing on different areas, asking me that scale of pain. And, um, I was like, you know, like a, a six, seven and to him that probably like an average person, a six, seven is probably not that significant, but to me, I'm thinking 10 as like, (laughs) I've just gotten out of surgery. I, you know, like something's going really wrong. Um, so a six to seven to me is like, I'm still in significant pain, but I'm, I'm not, um, I'm maybe not at a 10 where I can't function and I feel like everything's wrong. And so he he presses on the area. I tell him a six, seven, and I turn to my husband and I'm starting to like, tears are coming down and he flips around the bed and he's like, you are not a six, seven. He's like, we're going to get you some morphine. Yeah. That was, that was similar to my, my experiences. Um, I had a procedure that I actually didn't have any, any anesthesia for, and I was fine during it, but afterwards, um, they had me sit up really quickly. And I think that that just kind of made everything hurt a lot more than what I would have been able to lay down another 30, 40 minutes. And so I was, my breathing was completely off. I was completely, probably not really even responding very well when people were talking to me. And I, and I definitely remember saying my pain was like a four or five because like, I, I was still alive. Like I was still talking. I was still kind of there and I just kind of put it there. But I just think that my scale on the pain is just off of what it should be when doctors are asking for it. There's the other component to this too, of it's impossible for people to understand the pain that we're in. If you can't show them, I can't show them my insides, right? So everything's internal. So what they're getting is either coming off of my facial expressions, the way I'm walking or what I'm saying out loud. Other than that, it's all internal. And I think there's a big part of that that can be really difficult for those around you, unless you're like vocalizing it to not know sometimes the amount of pain you're in. Um, I give examples of like social situations because sometimes we leave things early or sometimes we can't, you know, make it as long as normal or show up to work and give a hundred and 20% like we try to every day because internally we don't feel good. And I think when you look at us, we look healthy, right? And I know that's not the case for all rare disease patients, but 
for our disease in general, you would have no idea what, what we're dealing with. And sometimes I think that's a hindrance to our well-being. And I think there's another side of this too, because it is just saying pain. There's the physical pain. There's the pain of our disease, but there's the uh, emotional pain that comes along with having to constantly describe your disease to people, having to try to explain to people what's going on so they can understand, or even the medication you have to take and just the psychological effect that some of that might have as well. There's a huge emotional pain that I feel like we're constantly hiding from the world. I think it's a big reason why I almost keep pressing, talking about like, depressions I've been in. And it's really interesting because my therapist has told me like, you are not somebody I would diagnose with clinical depression. She's like, you have situational depression. You are generally a happy person, right? Like you, you function in daily life, you do your thing, but there are events and there is your physical illness that create these situations that you have depressions. And I think like it's really difficult when that pain is happening because it can come out of nowhere. You can be having a wonderful two months and then something hits you and it's like, oh my goodness, this is like, I, yeah, I don't feel good again, you know? And I think there are definite triggers to it too. Um, Whether it's there was like a movie you were watching when something happened or you watch this movie in the hospital and suddenly it's on TV. Like there's definitely little triggers that I've found that you don't even realize you have until they pop up. And then you might just run, run to your room or run away emotionally crying or just need an emotional break from the situation you're in. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. And a lot of it's like, when things build, like we've talked about of like not getting that release. I think that's why, like, I really try and stay busy with finding hobbies. I can put kind of like energy or creativeness into so that I'm, you know, coping with some of it instead of sitting in it. I think if we sit in it, right, it just manifests and can feel like it takes over. But I hope too, when it comes to mental health pain that we're taking it as seriously as we are physical to our listeners and to know that sometimes the best place to reach out for that is to just start having a conversation with your doctor. It can be one of the hardest things you can do. Um, That's where, well, I started my therapy a little bit before that, but I've, my conversations I've had with my hematologist and oncologist is really where I let them know what was going on and where I got resources to get help. I was connected with their social worker. Um, and you know, I, I did FMLA paperwork to help with that stress that I was feeling, um, within employment, even though they are so good to me, stuff comes up. Right. And if we can let at least like one person in to, to try and find ways to improve it, I can almost promise you that, you'll be happier on the other side of things. So, so everyone, I, this definitely got much deeper than we anticipated on this Saturday afternoon. I guess before we end, Taylor, how have you been feeling? How are, how, just kind of give me like a status of how life is going on your end. Okay. So this is, I'm going to give a really clinical update to the listeners because 
they know it's a problem of mine. I have not been shy about it, but my GI symptoms, I am having normal poops. <laughs> Liz's face just died. <laughs> I know it's disgusting. We don't like to talk about it, but for me, it's a huge victory from 15 to 20 times a day to normal. Like I am in shock. I am functioning again. I am going to the grocery store without freaking out. I, I am feeling like me again. Well, I don't really know what that is, but I'm feeling like a healthier me. And, um, right now I would say the symptoms I'm feeling, um, is mainly bone pain. I don't feel like that's been improving lately really at all. Um, but as of like my GI symptoms and, um, the appendix pain I was having, like things are looking up. You want to give us an update Liz after I've given my, <laughs> my wonderful I mean, I, update. I mean, I don't know how I can follow that Taylor. Um, so I'm generally feeling okay. Um, as we talked about in our last episode, one of the things I am going through, I guess it wasn't our last episode, but in one of the more recent episodes, um, I am going through fertility preservation. So I am experiencing all the emotional roller coasters that come with that. And we'll definitely have a whole episode dedicated to that along with the physical aspect of that medication, which I think was a little bit more than I anticipated before I started. Um, but to stay positive, I get to see Taylor in person next week for the first time. Um, which is really strange since I probably text Taylor more than anyone else in my phone right now. Um, and then I have some really exciting trips coming up. So I'm trying to keep positive as I get through this process and kind of move on to the next stage of what that might be. Um, and really for me, that's staying busy and looking ahead to these trips and planning for them and really looking forward to a fun holiday season as well. Yeah. And thank you for everyone for listening today. I know we went probably deeper and more personal than normal. And a lot of that is because Liz and I have like skipped a week of recording. So we haven't really filtered as much out as normal, but I appreciate everybody listening today and hope everyone has a good rest of their Sunday. This has been the Not So Rare podcast.